So for the past three and a half years, I've served as the advisor to the Panther, Chapman University's student newspaper out here in Orange, California. And every staff is different. The students, the styles, the approaches. Some editors stick in your memory, some come and go. Much of it is a whirlwind of youthful enthusiasm and vigor and highs and lows. This year, however, this year has been something. Thanks to the pandemic, the Panther staff has yet to meet in person. It's all over Zoom, and it's frustrating as hell, which is why I am so insanely proud. Luca Evans. An email sits unfinished on her computer, the cursor flashing aimlessly, as Marissa Ciancerullo leans over to help her six-year-old daughter with her remote kindergarten lessons. Sitting side by side in the cream-colored upholstered chairs at their wooden dining table, the younger Ciancerullo is distracted from her online school, her ADHD kicking in. She wants to get away. She wants to draw. She wants to play a game with her mom. Katie Rule. When Pete Simi, a sociology professor at Chapman, first embarked on what would become a 25-year career of fieldwork, extensively researching some of the nation's most notorious political extremist organizations, befriending white supremacists wasn't on his agenda. Jasmine Sawney. After the fall of the Soviet Union, former White House Press Secretary D.D. Myers visited young Baltic countries to help build their democracies in the early 1990s. One night, when the diplomatic trip came to an end, she returned to Russia and prepared to board Air Force One. As her car turned a bend and revealed the Boeing 747 stationed on the tarmac, its lights illuminating the symbol of America, she paused for a moment. A flurry of emotions, more specifically a sense of purpose, coursed through her. If you do this job long enough, it becomes increasingly tough to find inspiration. The staff of the Chapman Panther, they've inspired me. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Katie Barnes, the ESPN.com writer who covers culture, LGBTQ issues, women's basketball, collegiate softball, and women's combat sports. This is episode number 198. Let's sling some Yang. All right, Katie. So the story that got me to have you on here was a profile you just wrote last week that just came out about AZ Fudd, the uh, young basketball player. But um, in doing this, I, I read your 2018 piece, which I wish I'd read years ago, and I didn't because I'm a moron, called They Are the Champions. And uh, mm-hmm. the subhead is, in the face of fear and anger, two young transgender athletes fight to compete in the sports they love. It's a fucking brilliant story. I just want to say, read your lead real quick, which is uh, Mac Begg steps from his house in Euless, Texas, Gripping the leash attached to Danny, who at 94 pounds is the largest of his seven dogs. Mac, only 20 pounds heavier than his bulldog, strains to get into the back of their grandmother Nancy's car. Danny seems to know they're headed to the coin-op wash for a bath. Nancy watches from her front porch, a cluster of plants behind her covered by plastic hanging in the gutter. This January is unseasonably harsh, and she's trying to protect them. She calls out to Mac to buy cleaning supplies. He needs to scrub the cake mud from the interior of his scion, which has been in a tow yard since he drove it to the road last month. Nancy had been the one to pick up the sky on that afternoon, securing the bumper with plastic fasteners. She isn't going to be the one to clean it. Nancy hopes time away from the car has refocused Mac. In three weeks, he'll defend his 6A, 110-pound girls wrestling state title. Mac, 19, is a transgender boy who wrestles girls because the Texas High School Athletic Association determines gender strictly by birth certificate, a policy approved in 2016 by 586 of 620 superintendents. Mac's certificate reads, female. I have found in my career, it is very, very hard to gain the trust of teenage athletes 
gender issues be damned. It's just hard. They're 17, 18, 19. They don't know who the hell you are. You come into their world. They usually give three word answers. And yet these two kids really seem to freaking embrace you and trust you. And I wonder how you did that. Part of it is that I understand them in a way that I would say most other journalists do not. Certainly any of the other journalists that they, may have been, that they might have been talking to at that time. Frankly, there just aren't many queer journalists in general um, that are writing about these topics. There aren't many in sports. Um, and there are even fewer people that would consider themselves to be members of the trans community writing in sports um, about these topics. And so in that sense, I automatically had credibility. And I think the fact that like, I didn't need to be educated about certain things. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to ask them questions that would turn them off. Um, and they knew I wasn't going to ask them those questions either. Um, I was able to present a body of work already that I think helped with trust. Um, and in Andrea's case, you know, I met with her mom and I had to convince her mom to trust me and I'm good with parents and adults. And that helped a lot. But I think also just the fact that this story in particular was reported over a long period of time. It was not something that was done in one interview. By the time that I was in Texas uh, speaking to Mac, I had already been around his family um, and in conversation with members of his family for almost a year. And I followed Andrea actively through conversations with her mother, interviews with her uh, for, at that point in time, by publication, about a year also. Um, And so in that sense, you know, I think just the investment of time um, enabled all members of the family, including the subjects themselves, to open up in ways that uh, perhaps they might not have otherwise done. I'm actually interested soup to nuts in this one. Like, how did you actually come up with the idea originally? And was um, was ESPN receptive right off the bat? Or did you kind of have to sell them on the idea of this story and that it would be a long haul? So oh, that's so interesting. Um, I was looking for a transgender athlete in Texas for about, um, I want to say, seven months before I found Mac. Why Texas? So I mentioned I alluded to the policy that was passed um, at that time, and it was passed in February of 2016 was when it was put onto the ballot for the superintendents to vote on. And so I was aware of the policy. And then when it passed in June and it was going to go in effect in August, I knew I wanted to do a piece about what was happening in Texas and as a means to explore high school transgender athletes more broadly. I really thought that that was going to be a conversation that was going to be very important Um, And that was going to be dramatically undercovered. And frankly, I was right about that. So I knew and I started looking for an athlete in the spring and summer and fall months of 2016. Um, I got close. Uh, I remember that I went to a conference in 2017 um, that I regularly go to. And I was just like looking at all of the presenters and I found like ACLU folks in Texas. And I was like, all right, I'm going to talk to them. I put in all kinds of calls to different local organizations. Um, I sent messaging to friends who were put it out over um, like LGBTQ parent newsletters. Like I was very convinced. I was like, if there is a trans kid competing in sports in Texas, I'm going to know who they are. And then the news about Mac broke in February of 2017. And I was in my apartment in Southern Connecticut. I like fell off my couch. I was like, this is unbelievable. Oh my God. And so I knew that Mac was going to be the kid that I wanted to talk to. And then I started actively trying to get him. How do you do that? 
Oh my God. I, I added him on Facebook, which was ridiculous. And he should not have added me back. And I told him that later. Right. It's like, what are you doing? Stop it. Don't talk to journalists. And so I except started for me. Like, except, yeah, for me. except for me, like, don't talk to anybody else though. Just only talk to me. Like, stop it. Um, and so I reached out to him then. Um, we also at that time sent Tisha Thompson from outside the lines to Texas to cover the state championship. It was a media frenzy. Uh, so there was this intense media spotlight. The Dallas Morning News got the first print interview. ESPN and specifically Tisha got the um, video interview, which was a, a real coup for us. And so that relationship you know, had already been started. And Tisha was very helpful to me because at that time I was so early in my career. I think that's really important. I was only hired full-time in late May, early June of 2016. And so I had yet to write um, a feature of the caliber that ended up running in the magazine a year later, but I knew I really wanted the story. And so that was kind of the start of it. Um, But I say that I was looking at and reporting around this story for about two years before it ran. When you see this kid getting all this coverage and ESPN goes down, I know you're saying like, oh, it was great, but is there a part of you that starts to feel territorial about a story and you get annoyed by so many people covering it. I wasn't annoyed. I was mostly afraid that I wouldn't get to do the story that I wanted. You know, I'm someone who is definitely a realist. I understand how I fit in to the company that I'm a part of and how we operate. And I was so new. Like, I really cannot stress that enough. Like, and I don't have a journalism background. Like, I very much was like building feature writing skills from scratch and journalism sensibilities from scratch. And I was like, I'm not ready for a TV interview. Of course, Tisha should do it. Like that was never really a question. It was more of all of this media attention is happening right now. I don't know if we're going to be able to take another bite at the apple. And if we do, am I going to get to be the writer that does it? How do I make sure that happens? How do I make sure the story is being spun forward? You know, how do I make sure that when the chips are down, I'm going to get to be able to do the story I desperately want to do. And the one that I had been wanting to report for months at that point. I just want to say, it's funny. You say you were so new. Your LinkedIn page still literally has as one of your uh, jobs, assistant resident director, Miami university, May, (laughs) May, 2015. That's true. I was an assistant resident director in, um, in May of 2015. That did happen. You said like um, when you talk to these athletes, your experience, your life experience helps them open up to you. But how much of your life experience do you share with them? And do you consider it important? Like you need to actually get your life experience out there to them. So they're going to say relatively quickly, oh, this person knows what I'm going through. Like how much do you divulge of your own life? when you're trying to get people to talk to you who might have similar backgrounds? I mean, I share bits about myself with all of my subjects. It's not just as a mechanism to have queer people open up to me. I think that for um, Mac and Andrea, I mean, they're so young. Um, I made sure that they knew that I am a non-binary person. Um, I use that mostly with their parents to be like, I'm non-binary. I care about this. And at that point, like I had written about uh, topics surrounding transgender people in athletics um, in the form of columns and shorter features a couple of times. And so I had that body of work already established that I could share as well, that I thought communicated pretty clearly my background and what I cared about and what I was about. And so in that sense, I, I don't necessarily think it was something that I did that was special in my reporting process with Mac and Andrea in general, whether we're talking about Mac or Andrea or AZ or Diamond to Shields, 
I always share myself uh, in different ways with the people that I'm reporting about. I hate to group everyone, but the mainstream media, I'm obviously a member of as well. We're kind of clumsy about it all. Even like they, he, she, just as an example, right? As a journalist for 20 years, I was always raised whenever you see they to change it because that's not, you know, if, if, if it's like a profile of some woman, right? And when I was fact checking at Sports Illustrated, maybe a writer would sloppily refer to she as they, and you'd be like, no, it's not they, it has to be specific, she, then. And I feel like we've spent all these years not knowing how to cover this and everything being so like set in stone. It just seems like we don't really know what the fuck we're doing. And then we screw it up. And then it comes off as condescending or awkward or clumsy or weird. Am I overstating that? And have you seen improvements in this in your time at ESPN? No, I don't think you're overstating it. I think it's absolutely a problem. Um, Even just yesterday, there's all this discussion on Twitter about coverage from mainstream outlets around discussions of the Equality Act and how um, a lot of the debate around the Equality Act, frankly, focuses on sports and specifically transgender girls' participation in sports. And yet, you know, folks who had anti-transgender perspectives were able to share that perspective and no trans person was talked to in a number of these articles. You know, it's failures like that um, that continue to plague um, mainstream media outlets. I do think that at ESPN, there's been a tremendous improvement um, in how we, and this is true just like across the board, it's not just myself, um, but in terms of how we are having conversations about trans folks, the level of education um, around trans folks in sports, all of that has improved tremendously. And I think it's because there have been multiple trans people that have worked at the company over the years that have helped us get there. And for myself, you know, I think that what I'm able to do that is relatively unique in our industry is that I have a depth of knowledge on these subjects that allows me to sort of bend them into like a journalistic sensibilities in a way that works um, in really profound ways. You know, it's not just like, oh, well, I call so-and-so and then I call another person with a different viewpoint. It's that like, as I'm thinking about the story, as I'm structuring the story, I know what the discourse is in certain ways. I know what research is out there. I know uh, so many of the players um, and have had relationships with many of these people for years. And so um, I'm able to present something that really grapples with the heart of the issues and isn't just sort of skimming over the top, trying to present multiple viewpoints on a singular argument. It goes much deeper than that. Um, and I think that is something that is missing within mainstream media because most people simply because they aren't living and breathing this and just are not um, equipped, I don't think, to kind of delve into these issues in really meaningful ways. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, frankly, there's just a dearth of queer and trans people in positions of power and in reporting positions and in staffing positions um, to really give these topics uh, their due in a meaningful way. In that story, you referenced different parents who there was a kid who wouldn't wrestle, you know, the kid and their parents who are horrified. Can you have empathy for the mom who's like, this isn't fair, blah, 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 blah. Now, understanding that you think she's wrong and her take is wrong, can you go up to her and talk to her and have empathy for how she's feeling and understand how she's feeling and have a um, like a level-headed, 
sort of conversation without your blood boiling with that person? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely can do that. <laughs> um, and I, I think that um, in many respects, you know, that comes through in the kinds of folks who are sourced in my stories. You know, I, I am on the record as having an opinion about this topic uh, through some of my early column work. Um, but I did a 30 minute with Lois Cole course uh, for that story. Um, 30 minute interview. I interviewed the Alliance Defending Freedom lawyer for my follow up piece that I did last summer. And they took that interview largely because I think that my stories are fair. It's not that they are neutral or objective or unbiased in that in the way that we use those terms, but I am fair in my reporting. And I think it's essential to be fair um, and to allow people to say what they believe and to present that in context and to examine with similar levels of veracity all perspectives. And so in that sense, like, of course, I can have a conversation with those parents. I think it's essential that I, as a journalist, be able to do that. And I may disagree or they may say something that I find to be offensive, but that's true. And I mean, that I could run into that at any facet of reporting um, on any topic, not just on something that is close to my heart as a queer and trans person. I just I think that's part of the job. And if you can't do that, then I'm not. It's like if I couldn't do that, then I'm incapable of doing my job. I actually think one of the great tricks of this profession is because we all have opinions, is going into a story, standing across from someone who you disagree as passionately as you could disagree with someone and listening and in that moment, not thinking I want to punch this person or this person disgusts me, but just taking in their information and listening to them. It's only hard when you don't know how to do it. But once you start doing it, it's actually not as hard as people. Don't you think it's not actually as hard as people think? You know, especially I think when you're dealing with parents, like all parents want their kids to have um, positive experiences and if you don't think that you're, and if you think that your child is having a negative experience directly related to something that's beyond their control, they're going to have a negative response to that. And I do think it's important to hear that response and to better understand where we are at culturally when it comes to sport. You wrote a piece in 2017. I'm taking it back a little bit. I really loved it. It was called, um, I cried when Sue Bird told the world she's gay. Oh my God. <laughs> don't be embarrassed. This isn't really good stuff. You wrote, um, Yesterday, Sue Bird told everyone that she's dating, dating Megan Rapinoe, and I cried at my desk. I shouldn't be surprised by my tears, but I am. I didn't expect to cry when Bird told the public something that was never really a secret. And I certainly didn't expect to choke up in the middle of a meeting right before being told that I should write about what was making me cry in the first place. But Bird's decision to let fans see this side of her stripped me bare. I can't even think about it with, without tears pooling in the corners of my eyes, and I can't speak about it without feeling sobs clawing at my chest. I'm a journalist who writes about women's basketball, but right now, I'm mostly the scared queer kid in rural Indiana, the one who still has a basketball signed by Sue Bird and Lauren Jackson, tucked away in a bookcase, which sits under two Seattle Storm license plates taped to the wall of my video game room. Wait, what's your beef with that? I think that's really good. It's mostly just like, oh, God. <laughs> As somebody who enjoys writing um, essays and enjoys writing about my personal life, I often forget that it goes on the Internet and lives there forever <laughs> for that's other true. people to find it. Yeah. What made you cry about Sue Bird? It was pretty well known that Sue Bird was gay. What what made you cry about her sort of opening up about it? I think because I had told myself that I didn't think she ever would. In that sense, I was really moved that she shared that part of who she is. Um, and, I, you know, I think in that piece, I <laughs> very vividly <laughs> placed myself as into like the emotional space of who I was at 13 and 14 years old, this kid that just loved 
the Seattle storm and Sue Bird and to then have her say something that just have her say something out loud that resonated with me in a deeply personal way. I think it, I just found it to be really emotional and reflecting on it. I think it's really powerful that, you know, a childhood hero of mine admitting that we had something in common could still move me at 26. Would you have been even happier if she announced she was dating Lauren Jackson? Would that be <laughs> That would have been hilarious. <laughs> all your I, Seattle storm dreams coming true. Oh, oh, exactly. Like all of, you know, the childhood fan fiction of my life. Like amazing. Actually, you and I got in a little bit of a, uh, not seriously, but a, a slight Twitter dust up last year when the <laughs> athletics started covering the WNBA, because I felt oh, personally, well, I just thought this was my opinion. And I feel like I didn't state it well, which we kind of agreed on is that, the athletic wasn't hiring these writers full time. They were paying them ship money. They were kind of throwing the bone. It felt like to me, they were throwing the bone of, all right, yeah, we'll let you cover the WNBA, but they weren't giving them that many pieces. And it wasn't, it just didn't feel that great. And, and we disagreed, but then we kind of came to a, a, a peaceful agreement. Are you content with WNBA coverage where we are overall? Here we are more than two decades into the league's history. Do you feel like it is covered seriously and with, the respect I, I'm guessing you believe these athletes in the league deserves. I think there has been tremendous growth in the last handful of years toward um, really high quality coverage in general, though. I think I believe that all women's sports should be covered more um, and with more resources allocated to that. I don't, I'm not entirely sure like what will satisfy me in that regard, but I do think that there is much more high quality coverage um, than we have seen in the past. And that's not just, I'm not just talking about like legacy publications. You know, I do think it's important that some of these smaller outlets that are doing it just for the love of uh, women's sports are giving young writers the opportunity to get reps. And I hope that pays off in the future in terms of these folks getting, um, you know, shots at full-time employment as hopefully the marketplace becomes more competitive. Um, but I think that's really important. And in the same way that I thought it was important in terms of what the athletic did and having beat writers in the locker room, like we haven't seen that in terms of uh, coverage of the W. Um, and I, I do think that it matters in terms of translating to better stories, more high quality stories, more access to news breaking and to source development. Um, just being in the locker room and being in that space um, lends itself to being able to develop the kinds of sources that will um, tell you things on background and off the record, which is not a level of maturation that we've had in the reporting apparatus of women's sports um, in a meaningful way until recently, I think. If you're so-and-so editor at ESPN or whatever, Bleach Report or SI or wherever, and you're like, look, not enough people care about, our numbers show not enough people care about the WNBA. Like the fan numbers just aren't there. Do you feel like there's an obligation to cover it anyway because it's sort of, groundbreaking and it's women's sports and it's marquee names. There are a lot of assumptions about data when it comes to women's sports in terms of metrics. Um, I will say that I often use metrics in my favor when I argue for pieces. <laughs> so yeah. I think that in many respects, a lot of my pieces have done just fine. Um, and proven that there's a broader audience for compelling storytelling, no matter what. And one of the ways that you get relationships and uncover those compelling stories is by investing in high quality coverage um, long-term. Like you need the fundamentals in order to um, access those higher level stories that are going to pay for themselves. 
Um, the other thing I will say is that, okay, sure, maybe apples to apples, the a WNBA game is not going to rate on the level of an NFL game. However, we also know that WNBA ratings are going up, especially at a time when greater sports ratings are declining. Um, the WNBA ratings were up 68%, and NWSL ratings were up like something absurd, like over 400% um, at a time when every other league saw ratings decline. That, to me, is saying that there is a place for investment. Uh, you wrote a piece. It ran on February 25th. AZ FUD is unbreakable. Mm-hmm. And this is actually why I brought you here. The only thing AZ FUD can bring herself to look at is a falling snow. She can't look at her mother, Katie, who's sitting in the passenger seat, too distraught to drive. And she won't look at her knee, which no longer looks like a knee anyway. Her grandmother, Karen, navigates her rented black SUV through the accumulating snow. It's April 13th, 2019. And they're rushing from the USA basketball three and three under 18 nationals in Colorado Springs to Denver, some 75 miles away for an emergency MRI to see whether AZ's injury is as bad as they all fear. The snow grips like quicksand. Precious minutes tick away. AZ needs to get in today, Katie thinks. The flight home from Virginia leaves tomorrow and the swelling in her daughter's right knee will only worsen. The stakes are high. Waiting isn't an option. Okay. I'm fascinated by this because, <laughs> and I do this too. So I, this is not a criticism. I'm actually fascinated by this. You were not there for this drive. Mm-hmm. How do you describe a drive in great detail when you're not there for it? So many well-placed interview questions. <laughs> um, so that scene was um, recreated through interviews with Katie and AZ. Um, you know, I asked AZ, like in terms of what she was thinking about. Um, I asked about, like, I asked Katie about the anxiety around getting there. Like what was so urgent about it? Like, how often did she text? Who did she text? What kind of car it was? Um, AZ, like, you know, said in the interview that she was looking out at the mountains. I've also been in that area, so I know what it looks like. I've driven from Colorado Springs to Denver. So I also just kind of know what the terrain there looks like, which was helpful. But yeah, I mean, that's how I did it. Uh, And I also, it wasn't something that I landed in just one interview with either of them. Um, You know, we did an interview. I wrote the scene. I got notes. I went back, addressed those notes. And as over time, we were able to get enough detail to kind of recreate what was going on there, both emotionally and in terms of uh, scene setting in that way. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and my daughter Casey is here with some exciting 503 Sports News. I know all of you have been patiently waiting for this. What? I understand it's been a long time coming. I don't know where you're going with this. But tomorrow... Yes. My high school water polo season finally begins. It's back in the pool for one final run with Casey Perlman. What does that have to do with 503-sports.com? The spot for all your throwback needs. T-shirts, hats, jerseys. Ugh, Dad. Why do you always have to make these things about you? First of all, AZ Fudd is one of the great sports names of all time. Yeah, that's great. Also makes me feel old old because she's named after Jennifer AZ, who... She sure is. Kind of a contemporary, so that sucks. And, um... (laughs) everything makes me feel old these days. It's the story of a great basketball player who has a really bad injury and kind of works her way back. And that is a story that has been told 8 million times in the course of sports history. You know, it's some athlete who has a really bad knee injury, an elbow injury, has to have reconstruction, blah, blah, blah. And I thought you made this piece really, really, really interesting. Is it hard not to fall into the traps of a story? uh, It's a comeback story. She's coming back. She had this really bad injury. And here she is like, are there... Are there ways to avoid falling into the cliches and routine rhythms of sports writing? For me, like what we tried to do 
was be really true to what AZ was experiencing at this time. And of course, thematically, it's not a new idea, as you pointed out. But the details of what AZ has experienced over the last two years are unique to the time period that we're in right in this moment. And I think that's what made the story resonate and relatable for so many people. Um, the ways that she bent her life uh, around the pandemic to continue to work on rehab and continue to try and get better. All of that is reminiscent to me of the ways in which I have bent my life um, to uh, you know, our new reality um, as we've all tried to get through this pandemic together. Um, you know, the sense of loss that she has experienced over the course of the last year and a half. Um, you know, all of that, I think, is really endemic and emblematic of the time period that we live in right now. And focusing on those details, I think, allows me to escape uh, certain cliches. Um, I know that as a writer, I fall into cliche when I am not specific. And so, you know, I should, I focus on reporting out the, the very granular details and writing what I mean um, and doing so on a very specific and granular level um, instead of just kind of writing a sentence that glosses over some of that emotion. I actually feel like I say to my wife the other day, I don't think I've ever been more productive working on a book in the last year of a pandemic. It's super weird because most people are like, all I want to do is watch TV and eat Cheetos because I can't focus. Has pandemic writing and pandemic reporting made you uh, more focused or less? Well, I would say less. I'm not productive in writing my book. So <laughs> kudos to you. Yeah. Um, I would say for me, I'm a really emotional writer. And so I... What do you mean by uh, that? What does that mean? Um, I mean that like... Oh, I'm trying to think about what I mean by that specifically. Um, I think... I pride myself on my ability to elicit emotion and I pour my own emotion into um, the writing that I'm doing. I try very hard to not be dispassionate. I don't want to be a disconnected narrator. I want to be in it. I want to feel it. That's when my writing is best. And so it can be harder to do that when I am also very anxious for other reasons, um, when I don't necessarily want to feel things because I have also experienced loss. And so I don't want to go there, um, just like for my own emotional health per se. All of that I think makes it challenging for me specifically. I will also say that, you know, I'm not really somebody who thinks that I am a particularly gifted writer, um, but there's one thing that I do pride myself on um, outside of uh, the emotion that I typically bring is scene writing. I really like doing it. I think I might actually be pretty decent at that. It's one thing I'll admit to. And that's much harder to do through recreation than when you're there. And to rely so much on um, the details gathered by other people and then disperse those details in a specific way, I think is very hard compared to just being able to be in a room and observe. I would pick that any day. And so not being able to do that as much um, has been a real challenge in writing for me specifically. I'm going to give you a compliment. Um, I was reading a, a book today, admittedly in the bathroom, called The Press Box by Red Smith's Favorite Sports Stories. This old yellowed book that someone sent to me, right? And uh, Jimmy Breslin, one of the great writers of all time, I was reading a piece he wrote. And uh, his lead was, it was long after midnight, the bartender was falling asleep, and the only sound in the hotel was the whine of a vacuum cleaner in the lobby. 
Casey Stengel banged his last empty glass of the evening on the red tiled bar top and then walked out of this place. The Chase Hotel in St. Louis caused the Lido room. In the lobby, the guy working the vacuum cleaner was on his big job, the rug leading into the bar room, when Mr. Stengel stopped to light a cigarette and reflect on life. For Stengel this summer, life consists of managing a team called the New York Mets, which is not very good at playing baseball. <laughs> and I read that and I loved it. It's great. Mm-hmm. And actually, I thought your easy FUD story, very similar. And you are really good at placing the placement of scenes and, and noticing the details. And I, I'm kind of interested when you are writing about a scene, let's presume you are there for the sake of the non-COVID world. Are you one of these people where the carpet isn't just a carpet, it's a blue carpet. It's not just a blue carpet, it's a blue shag carpet. It's not just a blue shag carpet, it's a blue shag carpet with a little stain of yogurt. And the wall isn't just this, it's this, this, this. And there's a candle lit, but it's not just a candle. It's a candle that smells like graham crackers and blah, blah, blah. Like, are you the hyper, hyper, hyper focused on the little shit? Not always. I think I have an editor who is, and that has helped me um, become more focused on some of those details. I focus on those details if I think they mean something in the moment. Uh, but I've also learned to like, and this is true in my academic career in general, I've always been too reliant on my natural memory. And so what I've learned as a reporter is to write things down more, which is not something that I typically do. Um, I don't keep a notebook. I don't journal. I don't write by hand. I really hate all of that. Um, but when I'm on assignment, I do have a notebook I take with me and I do write what I see. Um, and I sketch out diagrams and I do those things to try and remember that so I can deliver on what I, on something that I think sets me apart. Um, so that way, if I screw up everything else, at least I got the scene right. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about it. And so maybe I will notice the stain on the carpet if it's particularly meaningful, but I don't always. I try and search for meaningful details rather than get really granular on um, detail that may or may not matter. You covered a, a UFC fight and you wrote, Matt Hughes has Frank Trigg in a, in a rear naked choke. It's April 16th, 2005. And with just over a minute remaining in the first round, Hughes stretches Trigg's body to its limit. Trigg's ribs push against his skin as he tries to breathe. Hughes' legs are wrapped around Trigg's waist, pulling his hips to the floor as Hughes curls his elbow underneath Trigg's chin and pulls. That's really freaking good. That's like really good. I think it's about writing what you see. Like... I think it's really important as a reporter to be able to back up each and every one of those facts. So like that scene where I'm describing it, I watched that fight many, many times. And I wrote what I saw in that fight down to the detail. And so I can point out and say, yep, this is exactly where this happens. This is how it happened. You can watch the fight and read my description and know that that is accurate. Um, I don't like to... Um, you know, insert flourishes that I can't defend. And so in that sense, I find it to be a challenge creatively. You know, how do you describe something in such a way that is engaging and compelling, but is also truthful and accurate? Um, And so I focus a lot on those things. I don't like to um, exaggerate in any way. I think you're kind of funny, your resume, because you're basically like, you're sort of known these days as the person who covers gender issues and UFC. It's really funny. (laughs) it's I have Amanda Nunes to thank for that. Yes. It's really funny. Do you love yeah. UFC? Um, I do now. I didn't. Um, when I first started, I pitched an Amanda Nunes story basically on the back of she's brown and gay. I'm brown and gay. Let's make it happen. And they said, sure, I guess. 
cover her next fight. Like, you know, let's do a profile of her for her next fight. It was one of my first features as a staff writer. And her next fight happened to be against Ronda Rousey. And so everyone was focusing on Rousey, but I sort of pitched it as like, there's no downside here. If she loses, then we had a well-covered fight from both angles. If she wins, then we have probably the only profile of the person that just retired Ronda Rousey. And then she knocks Rousey out in 48 seconds. And suddenly I write about the UFC now. It's so funny. It's hilarious. Like, oh, I hate this sport. Oh, this is great. I, I really enjoy it now. Um, I pay attention and I will buy the occasional card. Um, but yeah, Amanda fights next week. So I'm looking forward to that. So when I was at Sports Illustrated, I was sent to cover like a Roy Jones fight. And I was like, ah, I don't know. And you're sitting there ringside. I think either sweat or blood literally plopped onto my lap, onto my notepad. It's almost like, you know, you shouldn't be loving this because it's so vile and disgusting. Feel like I, it's kind of fun to cover. It's kind of exciting. It's a lot of, it's a lot of emotion. Totally. Um, and there's like, there's so much detail and I actually learned a lot and this is almost embarrassing to admit, but I've learned a lot about parts of UFC and mixed martial arts in general that I didn't know about from playing UFC video games um, and learning about the ground game and learning what all the different positions are called. So I could better understand what was happening on the ground um, and better understand like what moves were being made and when and how and why. Um, But I find it to be really captivating and exciting, um, even if that is all very primal and mildly gross. Does this mean you are announcing on this podcast that you are going to enter the octagon and begin your own MMA career? Uh, no, no, it does not. <laughs> Just checking. I thought we had a, a scoop here. Well, listen, Katie, seriously, I am a huge admirer of your career. I think your writing is great. You're the first person I've compared to Jimmy Breslin on this podcast. It's a, it's a big compliment. Um, it's high praise. Yeah, I appreciate you doing this. Seriously. Thank you so much. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for having me on. I want to thank today's guest, Katie Barnes, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Katie on Twitter at Katie underscore Barnes 3 and read Katie's work at ESPN.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make no money for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.